Welcome to Pick Me Up, I'm Scared, the podcast. I'm your host, Madeline. And I'm your co-host, Kenna. Okay, Kenna, today I wanted to talk about housing. Oh. I know. Uh, So we are both officially lower middle class now in the great city of Los Angeles. It's a huge accomplishment. Oh my goodness. (laughs) But I have a question for you. Uh, What do you think it would take happening in your life from today, where you are now, for you to end up unhoused, homeless? Not very much. I agree. Not very much for me either. What Um, do you think? I mean, it all it probably would take is another, like, health issue, like, that, you know, where I'd be unable to work and maybe not be able to get any government assistance, um, which is, like, happened to me before, basically. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I think about this, too. I'm like, okay, from where I am now, all it would take for me to end up without a home would be losing my job. And not being able to find other employment for maybe three to six months. Then I'd be out of luck. Yeah, I think I probably have enough savings for three to six months if I really, really, really budgeted. Right. And in our lifetime, we've lived through two economic crashes. Because we've lived through the Great Recession, Mm -hmm. 2008. That's what we graduated college into. Yes, And then now obviously COVID. So if we were in some sort of situation where it was harder to find employment for us for longer than three to six months, if we lost our job we have now, I think that would be, we'd be out, we'd be done. Mm -hmm. Um, And I was thinking about this and I'm like, wow, even at like a lower middle class, you'd think you'd have like more stability, economic stability. Yeah, right? Right, you would think so. But um we really are all just so close at any moment to like losing our houses and losing any stability we do have. So that's why today I wanted to talk about homelessness. And and some people call it, you know, being unhoused versus being homeless. Unhoused people, that's uh, people first language, which some people like. As a person who has actually been homeless, uh, I actually don't mind either term. So I'm going to use either. Do you have an objection to either? No. No? Okay. So we're just going to go forward. I'm probably going to say homeless a lot, but just know that some people do prefer uh, unhoused as a term if you are listening. So uh, there are four types of homelessness, and the first one is chronic. And this is what most people think of when they think of homelessness. It's usually someone who has been continuously homeless for one year or more, or a minimum of four episodes within the past three years where they did not have a home. Um, people in this group tend to be older and they tend to have complex long-term health issues. And I know, Kenna, you were talking about how you think that if you had a, a health care issue arise, that would be the easiest step you could see to you ending up being unhoused, right? Oh, for sure. I had like, uh, an experience with, you know, my health, like come up where it's like, I couldn't work for, an undetermined amount of time and I was like whoa like I could really be fucked yeah yeah so this is what happens to lots of people who have long-term health issues um and people in this category they usually live on the street or in a car uh or in public parks public spaces like that and they're more likely to be what we call unsheltered which is a specific designation of homelessness where you're literally exposed and you have no shelter Uh, And this group accounts for 19% of the homeless population in the United States. 
The second group is episodic, and uh, that's somebody who is currently unhoused with three or more periods of homelessness in the previous year. These are also usually younger people who suffer from health issues. Um, and the third is transitional, which is the most common type of homelessness. These are people who are usually younger, and they often stay in shelters or temporary housing briefly. And this is usually the result of a catastrophic or sudden life change. Now, the fourth type of homelessness, um, people don't talk about as much, but it's hidden homelessness. These are people who become homeless but find temporary insecure housing solutions, and they're often not included in official data about homelessness. Many may live with friends, families, couch surfing, they might live in squats, and they might spend occasional nights here or there on the street, but usually it's not often enough for them to be included in statistics about homelessness. And... Um, when I first heard about this type of homelessness, this is when I actually realized that I had been homeless. I did not realize I had been homeless until I heard this. And I was like, whoa, wait, I've done that. I've slept in streets, but mostly on people's couches and mm -hmm. been insecure and sparsely uh, homed. And the more I thought about it, the more I realized I, I kind of know a lot of people who've gotten in this position. And I know actually, you know people who've been in this position too. Mm -hmm. And this is like a lot more common than we think it is. And these aren't people who are even included in the figures when we talk about mm -hmm. homelessness. And I think that like we have an abstraction of homelessness and poverty in our culture. And we tend to imagine only the most extreme scenarios for each of these things. But there's this whole world of it around us all the time. And it's a lot more common and prevalent than we actually think. So... In the United States, as of January 2020, there were 580,466 people who were officially counted as experiencing homelessness in America. And we know, obviously, those um, transitional and hidden groups, there's probably even more within there. 70% were individual people and 30% were families, including children. So just some like quick facts about what we got going on in the US right now. Men are more likely than women to encounter homelessness. 70% uh, of all homeless adults are men. In the US, 18 out of every 10,000 people uh, is unhoused. However, these figures are higher in marginalized racial and ethnic groups. For example, Native Americans experience it at a rate of 45 per every 10,000, as opposed to 18 as the average. And Black Americans, 52 out of every 10,000. So we see this being directly related to systems of oppression we have here in the US. Currently, 37% of unhoused people are also unsheltered, a number which has been on the rise in recent years as available beds in temporary and emergency housing fell by 9% over the last five years. So there are enough year-round beds for every homeless family in the U.S., um, but not enough for every homeless person. And usually priority is given to families, and that leaves only enough for around half of homeless individuals to have a, a bed in a shelter at night. And there's all these um, causes for homelessness. And I think like the most interesting thing I see people do when talking about this is misunderstand like the causes. Like, have you noticed this? Have you ever talked to somebody, especially a conservative person about homelessness? Yeah. And it's usually something like a, a character flaw rather yes. than like some sort of like, I don't know, bigger systemic issue. Right. Like it's, it's like, oh, this person just doesn't want to work. I'm like, mm. Going on here. I don't think that's the case. Yeah, I hear this a lot. It's that people don't want to work or that they choose to be homeless. I don't. Mm, yeah. I, I mean, I definitely have known some crust punks who chose to be homeless, <laughs> but that's like two of them that's ever. Like, that, that's like people always want to like pick out the like the outliers. outliers. I'm yeah. like, yeah, yeah, 
yeah, there's some crusty punks out yeah, there. And like, yeah, this crust punk I knew who train hopped and his parents actually had money, but he like only used his parents' credit cards for extreme emergencies oh and chose God. to be homeless. Very rare. I feel like this is like a common thing where I knew like a lot of like really crusty people whose parents were well off yes okay so I actually had this experience one time um I rented a car to drive from Portland to San Francisco or LA I can't remember and uh, I did a Craigslist rideshare to cover the cost of the car rental and the gas because I was really broke so I just put up an ad on Craigslist like hey I'm doing this drive if anybody needs a ride like meet up and um I picked up two crust punks who did the ride and I was like are you guys down to like pitch in for gas and they were like yeah for sure for sure and it was funny because in the back seat they were like talking they didn't know each other before and there was like a love connection for me and I'm like oh okay these people are falling in love in the back seat of this like rented Nissan Sentra whatever (laughs) this won't be annoying for the entire 13 hour drive (laughs) to California and then we get to the gas station for the first time where it's like time for one of them to pay and I'm like you got this and they're like yeah uh well I have my dad's credit card and pulls out like a platinum card all embarrassed and then the girl is like don't worry I have my dad's platinum card too it's really helpful in times of emergency and I was like oh my god these are both rich kids (laughs) these are rich kids in my backseat it's like a crusty when Harry met Sally kind of me cute it was a meet cute. It was a meet cute. It was our dad's a rich meet cute. That punk song, like, when we're falling in love. Do, 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 do. Oh, I don't think I know that one. I'm not singing it correctly, and I apologize to the listeners, but. No, that's okay. But okay, so anyway, th- these situations are major outliers. These are not like statistically what homelessness is, but I think for some reason, it's like the myth that especially conservative people have in their head is that it's privileged people with resources and access to opportunities who are consciously choosing not to engage in them. And this is not at all statistically true. These are very, very, very rare cases. If you were to guess what you think the number one cause of homelessness is in the US, what what would you guess? I mean, probably housing prices. Ding, ding, ding. It is housing prices. The number one cause of homelessness for families in the U.S. is a lack of affordable housing. And and we are in the middle of a housing crisis. The nation is currently facing one of the most severe affordable housing crises in history. Crises. Crises. In history. In 1960, adjusted for inflation, the median home value was $98,000. Now, in 2021, it's 269000 or more than twice that. And again, that's not in 1960 money. That's adjusted for inflation. So we're experiencing uh, an artificial housing shortage that's driving up prices. This is not caused by an actual lack of physical housing. Uh, for example, we currently have 139 million housing units in the U.S. and 122.8 million families in the U.S., meaning there's a surplus of housing for all of these families. We have more than enough homes for every family to live in. Um, but we do have an increase in landlordship. So since 1975, the share of available homes on the market being purchased by landlords has been on the upswinging meaning fewer units are available for individuals and families to purchase to live in on their own. So this results in artificial housing shortage while also leading to increased prices since most landlords will charge rent higher than the price of their mortgage in order to make a profit. This reminds me, okay, you know that book, fucking Rich Dad, Poor Dad? Yes, it's like terrible. It's, it's the worst ter- book of all time. basically, <laughs> like, all those books that where people are like, this is the finance book, they're just like, 
like from the 80s or 90s yes. or they're just like just buy apartments and then like become a landlord like that was the thing to do yes and we see this because landlords actually tend to be about four times as wealthy as average americans and the top five percent of income earners in the u.s own rental properties. I'm not surprised. I know. So what what's happening now is you have an area where you have all these houses for sale and you have people who could potentially theoretically be in them, but you have landlords purchasing them often in cash or um, at more competitive rates. They're seizing up all the properties and then they're all raising the price to live in them, which makes all of the like housing prices in the area go up. So it's kind of like artificially shortening and artificially raising rent at the same time. Yeah, that reminds me. I uh, briefly lived in a place that was um, owned by just like a big conglomerate company where I think they just went through and bought a bunch of houses during the housing crisis and then yes. rented them out. And the the rate was unbelievable and I was just like I don't even know how this is legal yeah so this is actually how we have a housing crisis despite there being 17 million vacant homes in the U.S. currently but only half a million unhoused people we have way more houses than we have unhoused people and in places where residents spend more than 22 percent of their income on housing, we see an increase in the number of people who will become homeless in the future. So this is directly linked to the price of housing. There's a direct correlation between house house prices rising and homelessness increasing. And when people exceed 32% of their monthly income on rent, this number increases even more sharply. Uh, and that 32% really hit home for me. I currently spend 31.25% of my monthly income on housing. And that's the lowest that number has ever been in my life. I thought that was really great. I feel really comfortable Yeah, right I feel like for the majority of my adult life, it has been over half my income. Yes, I agree. I am used to spending over half my income on housing. I don't feel like it's that abnormal. And there was even one point where I paid $1,500 a month for my apartment and I only made around $1,800 to $2,000 a month in income. Oh my God. So it, obviously we're used to paying a huge amount of our money towards towards rent, towards housing. And it just shocked me that 32% was the point at which the risk of homelessness increased so dramatically because I can't imagine. I mean, now I barely pay less than that. I pay 0.75% under that. Yeah. I mean, there were some months where it's like, if I had a bad month, like, I don't know how I was going to pay my rent. Right. Um, so in 2019, 6.3 million American households spent more than 50% of their income on housing, meaning 6.3 million Americans are dangerously at risk of becoming homeless. So the second highest cause of, uh, of homelessness is unemployment, which is something we talked about because for me, that would be the pathway I could see being the easiest for me to, to lose access to housing. Um, I have been sporadically employed for most of my adult life. You know, obviously now we have the company that I started. I started that company because I felt that my, my house or my job, my job, my employment was, uh, insecure. I couldn't trust that I would have a job anywhere in the future. I spent a lot of time freelancing, um, not really able to find like solid employment anywhere as an adult or very, very rare. I had maybe two real proper jobs in my adult life. Um, and both of those were constantly subjected to layoffs. One of them I did actually get laid off. Um, you know, it, it was, it's really unreliable. And employment is just not as reliable as it used to be, I don't think, here. Yeah. 
the National Coalition for the Homeless cites a lack of employment as being one of the key causes of homelessness as well. And unemployment uh, disproportionately affects marginalized people. Black workers, for example, are twice as likely to be unemployed as white workers overall. It's 6.4% for black Americans versus 3.1% for white Americans. And black workers with a college degree are more likely to be unemployed than similarly educated white workers. It's 3.5% versus 2.2%. And when black workers are employed, if they have a college or advanced degree, they are more likely than their white counterparts to be underemployed when it comes to their skill level. So almost 40% are in a job that typically does not require a college degree compared to just 31% of white college graduates. And once you are unemployed, it actually statistically becomes harder to get a job. So people who have been out of work for a while experience a harder time getting back for while, uh, back to work. There's like a stigma that's attached to having like big gaps on your employment. Yeah, which is also like, it's just like sometimes you don't work for certain reasons. Like imagine if you like had a baby. Right, and all these things make it harder. Or if you lose your job, say for example, in the middle of a recession and you're not able to find work or you know, for whatever reason, you're facing discrimination, it's like, a ticking clock like the sooner you don't get employment the more you can expect to not find employment and somehow that's your fault even though it's a systemic entire recession issue it's just it's so funny to me how i've been thinking about this a lot how unrealistic our expectations are in this country like they're like you always have to be like employed perfect and never like make a mistake and Like, you always need to have a nice house, but don't pay too much for it. You need to have a good job, but don't ask too much. Like, I'm like, all of this shit is impossible to do. I also, a thing that I think about a lot is the language we use when we talk about our expectations. Because I feel like sometimes people will say, like, well, I can't do this. And then you'll have conservatives or right-wingers jump in and be like, well, you can. Look, just... Just work two jobs and, you know, save 90% Never of your income. Never drink coffee. Yeah, all this <laughs> stuff. And, and instead, what I like to say is it is unreasonable to expect someone to do this. Yes. It is unreasonable to expect that anybody should not be housed. It is unreasonable to expect that in order to secure reliable or steady housing for yourself, you should have to work two jobs. It is unreasonable to expect all of these things. And I feel like shifting the focus to that language kind of puts it in the right frame of mind. It's not that it's impossible to survive in, in capitalism. It's that it's unreasonable to expect people to, to do this and to think the system's okay. Yeah. It's like, oh my gosh. So there is this thing that has been popping up. I think it's like one of those things on Twitter where people make it like a bigger thing that it is where it was, I think it's called like, they're like the new trend, poly employment. And you're like, you mean working two jobs because yeah. you can't afford to live on one job? Wow. Poly employment. I forget what the term is. But I think they were saying like, yeah, poly employment. They're like, wow, you're you're just like, you don't stop with one job. You work two. It's like, no, I can't fucking afford shit. I'm yeah, like, I can't job. survive on one job. That's wild. But like romanticizing it, like you're working. You're like That's what we do though. We romanticize productivity culture. And there's like... A certain dignity we think comes with with hard work, but the reality is that like hard work is often met with indignity. Yeah, my dignity is during my chilling time. Right. (laughs) Like I think that's what you know. What I still think about this so much. Where I read somewhere that like in the like I feel like it was like early you know twentieth century, like nineteen twenties. They're like 
by the year 2000, people will only have to work 16 hours a week. And all we'll be doing is like having leisure time and going yes. bowling and like having barbecues. And I'm like, what the fuck happened? No, even like we talked about this in a previous episode, but even like the Keynesian economics guy, he thought that by the year 2000, we'd only work 15 hours a week. Yeah, like, I think that's all we need. <laughs> yeah, I think so, too. Um, but obviously, people can't do that because, like you said, people are working jobs and they can't afford to live off of them. And that actually brings us to our next two highest causes of, uh, of homelessness. It's poverty and extremely low wages. So in 2012, 10.3 million renters, which is approximately one in four, had uh, what's considered extremely low incomes, ELI, as classified by HUD. In that same year, there were only 5.8 million rental units affordable to more than 10 million people identified as ELI. So there was half as many as there needed to be for these people. Additionally, uh, 31 out of every 100 of these affordable units were actually available. Oh, only that many were actually available to people identified as ELI. And after paying rent and utilities, 75% of ELI households ended up with less than half of their income left to pay for necessities like food, medicine, transportation, or childcare. And a thing I think is interesting about this idea, you know, it's a relatively new thing. People have started calling it the working poor, um, which is people who are working, they're substantially employed, but their income is not enough to actually support them, is that uh, people in this category often fall into like this weird liminal state with social services where you you don't have enough money to pay for food, but you earn too much for food stamps. Or you don't have enough money um, to pay all your bills, but you earn too much for like general assistance. Mm -hmm. And I think that we hear more and more people in this position where they're priced out of receiving help because theoretically they have enough, but like these amounts that we think theoretically should be enough don't take into account the exorbitantly high costs of housing that are on the rise. Um, and wages in the U.S. are stagnating and even on the decline, with salaries steadily making up a smaller share of U.S. Uh, GDP, the gross domestic product, since peaking at 51.6% in 1969. They currently sit at just 43% of our GDP. And since the 1970s, growth in real wages, which is the value of the dollars paid to employees after being adjusted for inflation, has slowed compared to overall economic productivity, which we've talked about before. We're more productive than ever, and we're making less money. Economists chalk this up to increasing monopolization of the employment market called labor market concentration, which basically means we have too few employers competing for the same workers on a local level. So the example that I've seen people use when talking about this is like, okay, imagine you have a factory employee who is dissatisfied with your pay. You're like, I don't make enough money. And then you hear that there's a competitor across town that's offering higher wages to try to attract more workers. So in that situation, this factory worker could be like, I'm going to go work at this other factory instead. But what we see now is that we don't have any potential competitors to switch to. If the local labor market is highly concentrated, then you have to accept whatever wages are at your current job. And if you have all of these um, monopolies growing, like we have fewer and fewer di like diverse businesses than we used to have, then what's happening is you have major corporations setting the standard for pay to be so low that even smaller businesses uh, accept that this is the going rate for that labor when it's not, it's artificially lowered. Yeah, I hate this thing where people are like, well, if you don't like your job, just go get another one that pays more. It's like easier said than done. Like let, you have to like also be working your job 
and looking for another one, you take a day off to go get an interview, you could get fired for do- taking that day off and then have no job. Right. And it's like, where are the jobs that pay well? Um, you know, this idea of like the labor market being so highly concentrated and like monopolized by just a few companies, this is real. And economists say that this alone accounts for 30% of wage stagnation in the U.S., so low wages and poverty are this growing concern in the U.S. And then um, the thing I like to cite a lot uh, is the IMF, because most progressive people, we know the IMF, the International Monetary Fund, is not exactly like a benevolent global entity, right? It's responsible for, for a lot of bad shit in the world. It's like neoliberal evil. However, they are a relatively conservative institution. And even this conservative institution in 2016 warned the U.S. that over one in seven people here was living in poverty. And this was an issue that needed urgent fixing, so our entire economy didn't collapse. Um, And the key way that the IMF suggested fixing this so that our economy didn't collapse was to raise wages. Yeah, I was just looking this up because I was like, I don't think anywhere you can afford an apartment on a minimum wage. And sure enough, like, uh, this, uh, this is like U.S. news. It's like, on average, renters need to earn $24.90 per hour nationwide to afford a two-bedroom apartment in any state. Yes. So we have this thing, right? We got the, the houses going up, the wages going down, nobody can afford to live, and then we wonder why so many people are unhoused, and we say, oh, they, they chose to be this way you know and then and that all the the statistics about like what's most likely to make people unhoused that i just quoted um those were mostly affecting families but for individuals not families there are additional key causes of homelessness um and it's usually that we lack necessary services to treat healthcare issues mm-hmm. and a variety of different types of healthcare issues one is mental illness between a quarter to one third of unhoused people in the country have a severe mental illness like schizophrenia, bipolar disorder, or severe depression, which uh, makes holding down a job nearly impossible. Yet these things uh, are, it's often very hard to get a government disability for these. And, and even if you can, it usually requires like enough mental faculty to navigate the complex bureaucracy in order to get those benefits. And most people don't have access to that either. And I know even like in my personal life, like I've had friends who are too mentally ill to work and I've seen that play out, you know, and their specific type of mental illness is not covered by disability. They could not get disability no matter how severe it was because it's not on the magic list of things the government will give you the green stamp Mm -hmm. to not work for. And mentally ill individuals in the U.S. often have to pay over half of their total income for their home because, um, you know, obviously of like systemic oppression that they face, but also because they're not able to work as much as their peers or get high in paying jobs. And that rate is higher than other individuals, which creates financial hardship that again, makes it harder to retain housing. So even if you know you are able to work, you're working within all these confines of the system where housing prices are too high, wages are too low, and it's, it's compounding with your own healthcare struggles that you're going through. You know what's interesting, too, that I just thought about? I was listening to, I believe it was on the media podcast, and they were talking about um, um, finding new apartments once you've been evicted, which is, like, impossible once you have, like... An eviction on your record. uh Uh-huh. And this researcher was following people who were trying to get housing after being evicted, and he was like, a lot of these people, you know, like, could afford the really nice apartments, but we're paying the same amount for shitty apartments as a nice apartments because they were 
basically priced out by having an eviction on their, you know, or not having good enough credit. And your credit can be impacted by many ways. Like, especially like for me, like if you have a health emergency, mm-hmm. spend all your savings, like forget to pay a few bills you know. Yes. And, you know, there's all the bias that goes into it because, um, white people are usually seen as upwardly mobile, even if they're, if they're in bad economic situations. So if you're like a white person who's been evicted and you have like bad credit, like people tend to still perceive you with this thing that's upward mobility, which is like, you'll get on your feet, but Mm -hmm. people of color usually are not viewed this way Mm -hmm. by society because of systemic racism and oppression. So you have like all of these forms of oppression that interact with the already difficult systems. And then um, if you have people suffering from mental illness and they are unhoused, they're also more likely to have altercations with police officers and legal trouble resulting in increased presence in court systems and jails. And, you know, I've personally seen this. I I had a person that I knew um, in one city where I lived where their sister had a mental health care episode and the police were called and the police killed his sister. And... We hear about this all the time, especially with people of color, and it's it's harrowing, and it's just, it highlights the increased risk that people on the street have, especially, like, in dealing with the police, you know, mm-hmm. if if they are in a position where they're mentally unwell, and what they need is health care. They need access to mental health care. Uh, and the rate of unhoused people struggling with mental health issues has also increased over the past 20 years, so this is something that's uh, going up, and... Like, that's not to say that this is the only reason, obviously, people become unhoused. You know, it's a quarter to a third of people. But it does explain, uh, I think, too, when when conservative people are like, oh, well, these people don't want to work. I mean, there are people I've known in my life where I'm like, I you cannot work. Like, I Oh, for sure. People who have tried, they've got fired from every job they've ever had. And when they tell me why, I'm like, wow, that doesn't really make sense to me. But I also know, like, like all of our brains work differently. And everybody can only handle so much. And not everybody is built to work a a full-time job in capitalism for whatever reason not everybody can do that and that's nobody's fault my hot take is no one is no one is well no one is yeah but I'm like some of us can fake it and survive it a little better than others and then you get into this situation where you're like well this is blatant ableism so what you're really saying is that people who are unable to work the system or make it work a little bit for them deserve to be on the street and die yeah it's some Ayn Rand survival of the fittest like eugenics bullshit it really is because it's like what your only value on this planet is work yes and like how do you measure that and also why does it need to be met you know i go down this rabbit hole of just like why is our only value on this earth productivity and labor is productivity and labor when it's actually unnecessary yeah for sure and then, like, so in addition to, I, I also feel like some conservative people have a little bit of leniency where they're like, oh, well, you're, you have a physical disability I can see. It's like this really specific amount of space that people are, are allowed to exist in as disabled people and get the, like, you're okay pat on the back, you know? And it's, if you don't have something visible to the untrained eye or if it's a mental health care issue, like, none of that is suddenly as valid. Yeah, and, who is making these decisions, though? I know. Randos. It, randos, yeah. Randos are making all of our important life decisions yes and I fucking hate it I hate it too and they're untrained and then another thing too that we need to talk about in con- in conjunction with um healthcare and like healthcare access and how it leads to homelessness is addiction you know addiction is a healthcare issue and we in the U.S. don't have the resources to adequately help people 
who need this type of healthcare. Scientists know without a shadow of doubt that addiction is a chronic disease. It's therefore a healthcare issue. It is not a moral failing of some kind. Um, and people will not respond to social shame or punishment as a means to treat addiction. In a November 2016 report, former Surgeon General Vivek Murthy, Mur yeah, Murthy, publicly confirmed what researchers have known for years. Addiction is a chronic illness accompanied by significant changes in the brain. Addiction does not occur because of moral weakness, a lack of willpower, or an unwillingness to stop. This finding stems from decades of work investigating the effects of substance use on the brain. Research has identified a number of areas in the brain key to the development and persistence of addiction. In particular, pathways containing dopamine are where many drugs exert their effects. And dopamine is a chemical in the brain important for carrying signals from one brain cell to the next, similar to how a train would carry cargo between stations is what uh, this thing I'm reading says about it. And pathways where dopamine is present are involved in many different functions, one of which is reward-motivated behavior. And we have... Um, you know, at least 38% of unhoused people in the U.S. currently struggling with addiction. And according to the National Institute on Drug Abuse, drug treatment can reduce substance use disorder rates by 40 to 60% while also improving employment prospects, if we care about that, by 40% overall. However, treatment for addiction in the U.S. typically costs anywhere between $5,000 to $60,000, which are clearly astronomical figures out of reach for most Americans. And let's not get into, you know, some of the abuse that has been found in those facilities right and these facilities they're privately run with limited oversight it's it's just like a lose-lose situation um and going down that kind of rabbit hole brings us to just like the general lack of health care in the united states and access to health insurance um a lack of in health insurance is actually also another key cause of homelessness in individuals in the u.s so the nch which was that national council on homelessness reported that a lack of affordable health care did in indeed drive homelessness. Here in the U.S., a serious illness can result in enormous health care bills, as well as the loss of a job, savings, and eventually a home, which is what you were talking about earlier that you've personally experienced firsthand, right? Oh, yeah. That... Okay, I just feel like, not to scare anyone, but you can be... Your health can go away at any time, and eventually you will be old, and it will go away. Yes. Like, so it's not to scare you, but it's it's going to happen no matter yeah. what, no matter what you think about. And like not having a safety net like is so expensive. Yeah. Um, and like I think about this, too, and how it, it affects people living with disabilities and their access to housing. Um, according to the U.S. Department of Housing and Urban Development, HUD, people living in shelters are more than twice as likely to have a disability compared to the general population. Um and another thing I think about, too, which I know is a hot topic right now because um, we've been talking about legislation being introduced in regards to this, is to qualify for SSI or Supplemental Security Income, um, which people with disabilities can get from the government. But individuals cannot have more than $2,000 in countable assets to their name. So fucked. So the average rent in the U.S. is over $1,000 a month. And this creates a forced tight budget for those living with disabilities, which, when coupled with housing options being scarce due to accessibility issues, creates increased risk of homelessness for people with disabilities. Yeah, it's awful. And then, of course, to get those, you have to be able to navigate our bureaucracy, which is often extremely confusing. I think it's, I mean, this, I don't know if this is tinfoil hat, but I think that the bureaucracy is purposely meant to be confusing. 
Yeah, I mean, I when I think about like, okay, I'm a person who has pretty strong like reading comprehension skills and I can usually figure out most things in life. But anytime I've had to deal with government bureaucracy of any kind, um, like the times I was on like Medicaid, you know, or Medi-Cal is what it was. It's California's free healthcare or the times I did have to get access to like food stamps or general assistance or unemployment. I struggled so much with trying to figure out like what I was supposed to do if I was filling out these forms right who I'm supposed to talk to how does this even work oh, and so you know I remember having to be on insurance trying to get on and off of state insurance and call like it was like my my second job yeah. trying to figure out how to do it and sometimes pe- and sometimes like a person would be so nice and be like you know this is this is exactly what you need to do and I was like thank you so much because I've literally called 10 other people who have told me nothing right and you need access to a telephone to do these things sometimes you need access to wi-fi transportation even to go sometimes like i had to go to a physical in-person meeting for my medical when i had that it's like you need access to all these resources to even be able to navigate the system and like the thing i thought about the most when i was doing it is i was like i don't know how i would do this if english weren't my first language Uh like i have no idea how i would do this because everything yeah is written in different like you have access to some information in different languages, but it's like you need to be able to ask people questions and detailed questions. And like once you start adding in any sort of barrier, even without a barrier of any kind, even with like access to relative like privilege, it was very challenging for me. So like the more barriers you start adding in, it's like these things are not very accessible for the people who need the help the Mm -hmm. most. We don't, effectively we have very little to no safety net in the United States at all for people who have healthcare needs. Um, you know, and people here, like, yeah, now we kind of have this thing where you can get cheaper free healthcare, but it's, it's, it's confusing. It's confusing and it's not super good healthcare. Like, we've known people in our personal lives when they've had a healthcare issue on like free healthcare, they have had to, like you said, make it a full time job to try to receive adequate healthcare. They're, they're told they're fine. They're told everything's okay. They're misdiagnosed. You know, it's just, it's this whole complicated or like, thing. You can only see, like, if you have a specialty doctor, it's like the waiting list is wild yeah like you get one per- like in my experience you get one person in the entire la area <laughs> yeah who can fix this one thing and or help no, you with this one and thing you yeah don't and don't look at their yelp reviews <laughs> god <laughs> so okay another cause we have for individuals facing homelessness is incarceration which is kind of similar to what you were talking about with evictions i think mm-hmm. um if you have like an incarceration on your record if you're a convicted felon you face so much discrimination in housing and jobs um people who have served time in jail or prison are more susceptible to finding themselves without a home than people who have not and it a lot of time has to do with their criminal record and it also has to do with the fact that when people leave prison or jail they're not given very many resources so unless you have a family who's there to help you in that transitionary phase, your options are pretty limited. And if you, you know, want to get your own job and want to get your own place, like you basically have to rely on like the grace of your employer and landlord to be like, I'm going to give you a chance because of all the stigma attached mm-hmm. with having been in prison. Very few people actually view it as like, okay, like you've served your sentence, you've paid your dues or whatever we present prison as being, prison is a a horrible thing that shouldn't exist anyway. But, you know, whatever the narrative is that we've agreed on in the United States is what prison is. Like, very few people actually believe that, that you've paid your dues to society and you you now can re-enter. For for some reason, like, is is there any redemption ever? No. According to this system, you know? Right. And so many people, you know, 
go back into the system because it, they don't have housing. And what happens is they don't have a place to meet their parole officer. Yes. And then they miss one parole meeting, they're back in prison, they're back in jail. Or like, you know, they have to work, they can't get the day off work to meet their parole. Like, it's so punitive. It's like, just like, if we are going to do punishment fits the crime, it is way out of proportion. It's, yeah, it's ridiculous. And then um, this leads me to the last leading cause of uh, homelessness in the U.S. that people cite as being a significant thing is domestic violence. So low-income women with limited resources often find themselves unhoused when escaping domestic abuse situations. Half of unhoused women and children reported leaving a home because they were experiencing physical violence. And homeless mothers, um, a shocking 92% said they had been physically or sexually assaulted. Uh, Additionally, women are often discriminated against when trying to find new homes on their own. Uh, People don't want to give them homes a lot of the time and often in domestic abuse situations financial control is a key element so many times women have not been allowed access to their own income so they don't have work history Mm -hmm. they don't have pay stubs it's very challenging to try to find a home when you're escaping a domestic abuse situation one study in minnesota in 2012 found that almost half of homeless women and more than a quarter of young women on their own had stayed in abusive relationships or gone back to abusive relationships because they had nowhere else to go yeah so you know, we've got all these situations where people are kind of forced forced out on the streets or forced, they don't have much agency, there's no choice whatsoever. And then we have people going, oh, they choose to be home, they like it. And what we see is this is not the case. And also in the US, I don't know if you've encountered this, but have you ever heard people talk about it like there's no solution? Yeah. I yeah, think, like, like it's that's just, just like, the way it is. That's just the way it is. And it's like, what? Yeah, and I don't know why people think this. Um, because there is a way to end homelessness and many places are doing it. Um, in the US, for example, four communities have already managed to end chronic homelessness. Uh, it's Lancaster City in Pennsylvania, Rockford, Illinois, Bergen County, New Jersey, and Southwest Minnesota. Hmm. And globally, many other countries are also making huge progress in tackling homelessness. In both Denmark and Finland, around 0.1% of the population is homeless, which is less than half of in the US as a proportion of population. In Tokyo, uh, a population larger than New York and LA combined, only 700 people are unhoused, or 0.005%. Wow. So for reference, Los Angeles has over 66,000 unhoused people and New York City has 80,000 unhoused people. Wow. And that's on a combined population less than Tokyo. And in Singapore, as well as in the city of Medicine Hat, Canada, which is a great name, there is virtually no homelessness at all. They cannot even count people who are homeless. Obviously, there's probably some instances of hidden homelessness occurring, right? Because that's harder to track, but when they try to record it, they are not able to find anything they can record. So how are they doing this? Um, Well, it seems pretty common sense, uh, but the most effective way to end homelessness is to just give people houses. Whoa. (laughs) Shocking, right? (laughs) I'm doing the the mind blown emoji. (laughs) Like, wow, if you just give people houses, they're not unhoused anymore. (laughs) It's like, I know. It's painful that this is a revelation to anybody, truly. Um, These are called Housing First Initiatives. So Housing First Initiatives, it's basically just what it sounds like. And the most effective way we found to end homelessness, yes, is quite simply to give people houses. Um, Prevailing sentiments around homelessness actually uh, are this different thing, though. It's called the staircase model. 
um, which is where they try to tackle jobs, addiction, or healthcare issues first with temporary housing with the idea that you'll like get your life back on track. Uh, however, we know that the actual primary cause of homelessness is um, actually just not being able to afford housing. Our number one, two, and three causes of homelessness are a lack of affordable housing, low wages, and poverty. So the staircase model actually is not helping. And for those people who do have tertiary issues affecting housing, like healthcare concerns, time and time again, we see that these issues cannot themselves be adequately treated without permanent stable housing first. Holding down a job, for example, without having a permanent address and regular access to clean clothes, um, showers for personal hygiene, it's nearly impossible. Having reliable access to medical care is similarly also nearly impossible without stable and reliable housing as a home base to operate from. The reality is that short-term housing like shelters and transitionary homes do not adequately address these issues. And every country that has had success in treating homelessness has done so by, yes, just giving people free unconditional housing with no strings attached and as quickly as possible to ensure their homelessness does not become chronic. Housing specialist Juha Kakinen in Finland says, um, quote, we had to get rid of the night shelters and short-term hostels we still had back then. They had a very long history in Finland and everyone could see they were not getting people out of homelessness. We decided to reverse the assumptions. We decided to make the housing unconditional to say, look, you don't need to solve your problems before you get a home. Instead, a home should be the secure foundation that makes it easier to solve your problems, end quote. Um, housing first doesn't stop with just housing though. Um, it's called housing first for a reason. And that reason is that additional support does need to come afterwards. Adequate access to healthcare is essential, including traditional physical healthcare, as well as mental healthcare, addiction treatment, all free to the public. And we have seen great success um, with Housing First models that obviously accompany supportive services afterwards. Housing First models have a 75 to 91% retention rate long-term. Multiple studies show that between 75 to 91% of people who are rapidly rehoused still are in those same homes one year later, which just goes to show that you know nobody is choosing to be homeless. These recipients of Housing First assistance are also more likely to attend job training, school, medical appointments, and substance abuse treatment. They are also less likely to find themselves in domestic abuse situations again, and less likely to be hospitalized again. But I think an important thing to note here is that these people are also not given homes with the expectation that they must attend job training, school, medical appointments, and substance abuse treatments. They're given homes like um, the Finnish representative and housing specialist said, they're giving, given homes with no strings attached. They're given the homes first and outright. And just by virtue of having access to these homes, they are of their own accord, accord more likely to, to try to solve any other issues going on in their lives or other problems that led them to be unhoused in the first place. And let me guess one thing. This is giving people housing is cheaper <laughs> than letting them stay unsheltered. Yeah, you would be correct. <laughs> it is indeed cheaper. Currently, the U.S. spends an average of $35,578 per year for every individual experiencing chronic homelessness, um, which is spent mostly via crisis services, jails, hospitals, emergency rooms. Uh, however, the current median U.S. rent is $1,098 per month or $13,176 per year. So it is no surprise that everywhere Housing First models have been tried, we have seen huge savings in the annual public cost associated uh, with homelessness. 
Yeah, that's like when like conservative people are like, oh, it costs too much money. It's like, no, no, no. It costs too much money to do what we're doing right now. Yeah, and so it's not working. So when people say that, it's like there is some other more nefarious reason why you don't want people housed. Right. And it's the, we've talked about this before too. It's the American obsession with being punitive. We want to punish the poor for being poor. And it's also just this idea that like, like, well, I had to work for my house. So why don't they? And okay, you know, me, I'm like big brain. What if nobody had to work for their houses? What if everybody just got houses? (laughs) Yeah. I don't. Okay. So like the, the NIMBY people, which, uh, for you who don't know, it's not in my backyard. People who are like, I don't want you know, houseless people near me. I don't want low income people near me because, you know, I worked hard for this. And it's like, well, did you most wealth that you would need to purchase a condo or a house nowadays? I feel like it's like inherited, like, or, you know, how do you, how do you even measure that, that you deserve it more than somebody else? That is like, that is not a, I don't know if that's a human thing that you can calculate whether someone deserves housing or not because to me everyone deserves housing yeah well i mean the thing about housing is that most people agree it's a human right right like um i don't understand this position either because as a person who i i do own my house i budgeted down to every penny for years picked picked up extra work ate only lentils and rice um for like three to five years in order to save enough money and get approved to buy a house here in LA as a low income person at the time, which I was uh, not, you know, now I got my stunning lower middle class <laughs> rating. Um, but, but when I bought my house, I was low income and I did all of that. Um, and I do not care if other people get houses for free because I know that I should not have had to do that just to have access to stable housing. Housing is a basic human right as defined in the universal declaration of human rights, which was created Uh, by the UN, the United Nations in 1948, and signed by every UN member uh, nation, including the US. Uh, Everyone should get free housing. And, you know, if the rest of the country isn't on board with that, if we're not going to get free housing to everyone, why not start somewhere uh, with the people who need housing most now, who don't have it? Like, it does not affect my life whatsoever if other people get handed free houses. I'm happy. That makes me happy that they don't have to do what I did, which is not even possible for many low-income people. And again, like we're talking about shifting the narrative, it, it's not it's not realistic, it's not reasonable to expect every low-income person to do what I did just to have a roof over their head. Yeah, and that doesn't take into account like misfortune, accidents, fucking COVID. Right. Like recessions, like anything like that, which are basically kind of like natural disasters. Yeah. And, you know, I did this all, yeah, as a low income person, but also as a person with privilege, I'm able bodied. I'm able to work. I was able to work one job, pick up extra side work, do all this stuff. And, and that's, you know, like another thing that goes into it. I just can't understand the mentality. Like, I worked so hard to do something so other people should have to work hard to do it too. It's like, I worked so hard to do something and that is why I know it is not reasonable to expect all people to work this hard to do this. Like, people should be just able to live in a house. Nobody should have to do what I had to do to make this happen. Like, I I just don't get where that shift in that and that mindset comes from. My guess is like, once you start thinking like, oh, well, this person deserved, didn't, does you know doesn't deserve to not have a house does that that means that I don't deserve to have this house I think that it starts like snowballing where you you think more and more things that you thought were true 
about your identity, like how hard, like quote, I'm using air quotes, like how hard you work, like what your worth is, like what your place in society, so many things start to crumble. What it's like, you, you know, once you pull out, you know, the, the, the string, the sweater starts to right. unravel where you're just like, you know, because it's, you, you think that you're doing the right thing. Like I work hard. I worked a job. I put in shitty hours. Therefore, like if you were like, oh, well, I didn't have to do that. Like that's, that's some painful shit to realize that like, it doesn't have to be that way for many people. I think that's true. I think too, especially if you built your identity around that, like I consider myself a person who works hard. Um, I definitely know people who have worked harder than me and have had less. Like you can very obviously see that like hard work does not correlate to like pay, you know, like the American myth of the meritocracy. Like we see the people who earn the most consistently do the least amount of work or get the most paid time off or the most vacation time. And the people with the lowest paid jobs have the less least amount of job stability or are less able to call in sick to work, to take time off of work. So yeah, I think it's like people who've accepted the myth that, that you work hard and good things happen don't realize that many people work hard and nothing happens, no good things happen, or even worse, bad things happen, or that many people are not physically or psychologically able to work what we consider to be hard, and then, you know, you extend it, right, and it's like, we shouldn't have to, life is not meant for work and productivity, and this is, I think you're right, to like, deny one thing is to deny the to deny the entire model of capitalism, which is really hard for some people. And it's, it starts, and from there, you just, yeah, you realize, like, how ableist our society is, so how racist ableist. it is, how so misogynist, racist. like on and all the like, you know, it, you know, it's like there, it's, it, it's depressing it's because depressing. like, I think about, you know, I should not go on Twitter because it just makes me feel like I'm living in a garbage internet universe. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but you know, like I remember one time, uh, you know, like on Twitter seeing this thread where someone was like, talking about how like we can forgive all student loan and there were so many people in the comments who were like I you know I went to college without paying you know having to pay student loans because I just went to a cheaper college or someone was like well I worked three jobs on the side like how dare people get college for free and I'm just like damn y'all seem bitter yeah (laughs) like it's just like when someone's just like it just seems like such weird bitterness and sometimes maybe those voices are just getting amplified because people like that who tend to have like to me like a chip on their shoulder or just they have something that they just can't let go of they're the most people who want to want to say something about it online and stuff where it's like i don't know if most people feel that way like i don't know if most people are just like well i were i got this thing and this person you know didn't most of us don't fucking care or you wouldn't even notice because the reality is that okay you only noticed that potentially somebody could be getting a free college education because people are talking about ways to forgive student loan debt but like you didn't notice that 25 rich kids from your hometown got free college because their parents just paid for it yeah you didn't even notice people aren't getting fucking mad about that shit right it's like it's just like I it's it's very confusing where it's just like I just I think people don't know what to be mad at. They don't. They really don't. Okay, so wait, I do have this whole section here we can talk about too, which is the actual uh statistics and facts and figures about how much money people saved when they implemented. Ooh, please tell me. Okay, okay, we'll do this. So in Denver, um 
they call this housing first model permanent supportive housing, which means you just get the free house and then people are available to support you with any other problems you have in your life. But again, no strings attached. Um, they saved an average of $15,733 per person per year who was eligible for this. Um, a 2017 Rand Corporation analysis of housing and health program in LA County, where we've been trying this out uh, for a few people, concluded that the county saved about 20% by putting people with complex mental health issues in supportive housing rather than relying on law enforcement and emergency room visits. A Central Florida Commission on Homelessness um, had a study that indicated that the region was spending about triple on policing homeless people's nonviolent rule breaking as it would have cost to just give each homeless person a house and a caseworker. In Canada, Housing First Model saved $24,000 Canadian dollars or $18,719.29 in U.S. dollars per person per year. So even taking into account regular treatment and health care in addition to housing, it is still more cost effective to provide people with houses first. According to the McGill Reporter, quote, most of the costs of housing first for people struggling with severe mental illness are offset by savings in other areas like emergency shelters, reducing the price of intervention from about $20,000 to $6,300 or 69% reduction per person per year. For people with moderate needs, the intervention is less expensive, about $14,500, and the savings are smaller, 46%, so the net cost is $7,900. The cost for one more day of stable housing is about $42 compared to $56 uh, for people with moderate needs, and in either case, housing first costs about the same as many other housing interventions that provincial governments already pay for while providing permanent instead of temporary solutions. So these are all the ways in which we have found every time we've tried this, it is literally cheaper to just give people houses than try these roundabout bizarre ways of tackling homelessness that we know don't work um, because we want to be punitive. However, we are so hellbent on punishing the poor that people refuse to accept this, even though it's the obvious solution, because like we were talking about, we think it's unfair that some people should simply be given houses for free. Yeah, and I think that like, People who are just like, well, that's unfair that someone else gets a free house and I don't, I would be like, yeah, everyone should get a free house. But we should, shouldn't we start by helping the people who, like, triaging the situation? Triage it, yes. Because once we start giving people who are in desperate need, then we work our way to give, to make sure everybody has that and doesn't have to worry about it. And, like, how many other social problems would that solve? Like, right. Like, if you think big picture, big brain, galaxy brain, like, how many issues in our society are caused by people's insecurity around housing, like, anxiety around housing? Like, I have, like, a steady apartment now, but it's an apartment still. It's not permanent. You know, something right. could happen, like I said, with if my health goes bad again, if they tear down the building and I don't get the right paperwork money type situation. Like, to me, like, that's still in the back of my mind and I do things in my regular life to make sure that I, you know, don't have to be without a place. So, but when you think of that, it's like, but there are times in my life where that was the number one issue in my life was how was I going to afford my apartment? Right. Yeah. And I've been there too. It's like, how is rent getting paid? How is rent getting paid? And and I feel like it is true. It's like what you said, like we need to trail the situation. We need to start with people most immediately in need. And if you look around and you see people with free housing and you're like, wait, that's not fair. I why don't I have free housing? The solution isn't nobody should get it. The solution is you should get it too. 
Exactly. Housing is a human right. Everyone should have free housing. Everyone. And, you know, you see sometimes the, like, the accidentally left-wing tweets where people are like. <laughs> I love those. I know. Where they're like, giving people free housing. What's next? Free food? And we're like, yes, yeah, that's absolutely. What's next. Free food's next. Like, and you got to start somewhere. You got to start somewhere. And, and I think people are afraid to start I think also, too, like, it seems like a dreary exercise. Like, it seems like something that'd be like, oh, well, it's just so hard to help people. And, you know, it's, uh, or it's just like, what about just being like, yes, this is like, man, in the future, it could be so much fun. Yeah, life could be great. We gotta, like, yeah. this could be like something to lead to something like really cool. Like, I'm always thinking of stupid sci-fi shit, but yeah. like, I'm just like, I just feel like this doesn't have to be like a dreary exercise in like the futility of us getting along as humans. Like we can do this shit. We can like make it better and maybe it doesn't have to seem like so, you know, so dreary. I don't know. It doesn't have to. And I also think that like, this is the question I always wonder about. I'm like, okay, I'm imagining that I'm a rich person and I'm imagining I'm a rich person who doesn't care about other people. And I'm imagining that when I walk down the street and I see somebody unhoused in crisis rather than having basic human empathy for that person if I'm a rich person I'm just like oh this is annoying it's like why wouldn't you want to remove the annoyance then to your beautiful what you think is your beautiful rich guy city don't you want your beautiful rich guy city to be beautiful for the rich like well I think how is this how is this something you want at all it's like I think do some people really just want to be walled off from the right maybe maybe they just want to be like kings and have serfs and stuff but i don't think most people want that i think most people weirdly like connection or even if you like privacy you want the outer world not to be shitty yeah and i think the thing too is like if these people were just being given homes if unhoused people were just given homes like you wouldn't even notice it was happening. You wouldn't even know. It would not affect your life whatsoever. Mm-mm. You would not be paying more in taxes. You not not there's no reason not to do this. And and people just get so hung up on the spite. I know. Why the spite? The, why the spite? And it's it's but I you know, I think it is like we talked about. I think it's the spite stems from the fundamental understanding that all of capitalism is flawed. Mm-hmm. The spite comes from the understanding that life is not fair. That that Everything is not operating the way it should. And yeah, it's like you, you have to you have to get through the spite first. And I think like getting people on board just from like a practical position, like like look, you could we could end this. First of all, we know it's it's endable, it's fixable, we have the resources to fix it. We're just not being efficient with how we're doing it. And I think like that's the message you have to get through to people. And I don't know why that's so hard. I don't know either. I don't know. Anyway, so there we go. That's uh, that's the episode for today. Hopefully, hopefully um, we'll have we'll have a bright and wonderful future of staying in our homes ahead of us. But uh, if not, you know, hopefully there's some systemic change coming soon because I do think that people in the United States are are starting to catch on that there's a better way we could be doing this. Yeah, for sure. There's the, a better way. The future is not always bleak. Mm-mm. No. We do have a question from our Patreon that we're going to play and answer now. Um, just a reminder, if you would like to give us $2 a month of your money on Patreon, uh, you will have access to a link where you can leave us voicemails. And we will answer your questions and talk to you either um, here on our regular podcast or in special Patreon 
only bonus content. So without further ado, let's go to the phones. Hi, Kenna. Hi, Madeline. Um, I feel very strongly about climate action. Uh, I'm really interested in joining a local group that organise acts of civil disobedience with the goal of forcing the Australian government to act on climate change. Um, however, <laughs> this is creating some tension with my best friend. Our political opinions are typically very similar, and even when they're not, she's always been really supportive of me acting on my beliefs even when she disagrees. But uh, she's super uncomfortable with the idea that I might do this. Um, so much so that she won't even talk about it as she gets too upset. Uh, we're only 21, and this is the first time I've ever really encountered a difference in values of this magnitude with someone I'm so close with. Uh, I don't want to jeopardize our relationship, but I don't want to sacrifice my values either. And I'm wondering if either of you have any advice for navigating that. Thank you. Oh my gosh. Thanks so much for calling in. Um, this is, this is kind of a weird one to me because to me, you know, most of my friends are pretty much on the, you know, on the same page, like stuff like that. So maybe I need a little bit more information why they're so concerned. I know that was the first thing that I noticed too. I'm like, what are they upset about? Like, are they worried that you're joining like a far left extremist group that could end in you being like, personally injured or harmed in some way or like or... worried you'll go to jail yeah. or are they just uh uncomfortable about thinking about client uh climate change client change <laughs> <laughs> yeah it's really interesting I don't because I cannot imagine a world I mean obviously my friends have some different values and interests than me not every we're not monolith people have different priorities and interests but I just can't imagine a world where I would be upset with any one of my friends pursuing something they actively cared about because obviously we're friends I I for a reason I think that all of their values are good and what they're interested in is good and righteous even if we have varying degrees of our involvement like I have a friend who's really really active in like tenants organizing like tenants rights organizing mm -hmm. and I, you know I'm not really active in that but I think it's really fucking cool that she is like that's yeah. so sick I I can't imagine why somebody would ever not support you wanting to do something tangible and actionable about climate change where's the bad in that where's the evil in that yeah and i'm i'm wondering if they're maybe just like not as maybe not as gung-ho as you and maybe or that's it's hard for me to discern whether they're just like okay that's cool or if they're just like uh how could you do this you yeah, know but they don't want to talk about it okay here's what i think i think that Unfortunately, sometimes you grow out of friendships. And I don't think any friendship is worth compromising your moral compass over. However, that said, I do think sometimes you'll have differences in opinions with your friends and that is okay. And I think sometimes our friends can give us um, different perspectives on that that maybe are things we wouldn't have usually thought of on our own. So, you know, I don't think it's good to create like an, an echo chamber of your own beliefs but I do think it's important to have the same values and core guiding principles as the people you have around you, right? So I think that like, it may be worth acknowledging that if your friend is so upset about you wanting to do something, do, to do something so objectively good, you know, with your time and energy, that it might just be one of those friendships that you're gonna grow out of and that's okay. Because regardless of having different interests and different priorities, whatever, I cannot imagine having a friendship where there was a certain part of my life that I just, it was off limits to talk about. 
Yeah, it's that's that's really strange to me. And I think it's a good point that, that it is like it's like an unfortunate part of growing up. And I mean, beautiful, you know, you get wiser as yes. you as you get older. And that often means like friends that you had when you were younger kind of like fall to the wayside or maybe you don't hang out as much. Especially in your 20s. Yeah. And sometimes it's not even like a big friend breakup thing. It's just like, oh man, hanging out with this person doesn't feel as good as it used to. Like maybe this person, like we only like, you know, we only go to the bar together. We don't talk about personal stuff. (laughs) Or maybe you have friends who are, it's like, oh, like this person is like, we do, you know, like there's, there's different types of friendships too, but I I do think that most of my close friends, if I were doing something of that nature, would either be like, yeah, go for it, or just be like, that's cool. Right, right, yeah. I think it's like, I I think you don't need to expect your friend to be as 100% about everything as you are, but I think it is reasonable to expect your friend to allow you to talk about your passions and interests around them. Yeah. I think that it would be very, very strange to have a friend who's interested in something and you're like, I just can't talk about this with you. Like to me, that is a very weird boundary in the friendship where you are not allowed to talk about things that you enjoy, especially if they are uncomplicated, objectively good things. Yeah. It's like when I was vegan, like very strictly vegan, uh, like if I had a friend that was like, oh, blah, blah, blah. I I did I didn't have friends like that. Right. Like even if they ate meat, like they just never Being vegan's actually a good example. Yeah, cuz I'm vegan and like I can't imagine any of my friends would not allow me to talk about veganism even if they are vegan or aren't vegan, even if they eat meat. Like that would be weird to me. It's the same kind of thing where I'm like, "Oh yeah, this is the thing I do. I I like it. It's cool." If somebody was like, "I just cannot even talk to you about that." I'm like, "Well, I'm not trying to convert you. I'm not trying to force <laughs> I, anything I feel on like you." I dated someone who was like got really like itchy about it whenever and I finally was just like, "I'm vegan." And yeah. like you need to just accept this yes. or not and they chilled out. Yeah, so I just, I can't even, I don't know, whatever. I mean, in my life, I have encountered people in varying degrees of organization, definitely. And I will say that sometimes it's intimidating when your friend goes down um, like an activism route, almost like when I've experienced this, I'm, I'm like jealous and I feel shame sometimes. Um, like for example, my friend who's really into like tenants' rights and tenants' organizing here um, in the LA area, Sometimes I feel shame for not doing as much as her. Sometimes I'm like, wow, look at how much she does. I could be doing more. I could be doing better. And that that is a real thing. Um, that kind of like feeling bad about yourself or feeling less than or feeling like you're not doing enough. But that, again, does not sound like what you're experiencing with your friend. Because anytime, you know, my friend who does this work talks about it, I'm always like, wow, that is so awesome. You know, so I don't, I, yeah, I don't know. Yeah. That, it's a weird one. That's, that's weird because that, sometimes people can be like, oh yeah, that's not, that's not my interest, but you know, good for you. Right. But so I know. think my advice would be this. I think like getting away from like the, the 
the shock. It's shocking. <laughs> <laughs> the shock that somebody would be upset at you over this. Um, I think like the tangible solution would be this. I think step one to really understand why it's affecting her so much. Where is she coming from? Um, and this to, and, and if you need to ask her questions about that, maybe you could preface it with like, look, I, I value our friendship and I care about you. And I've noticed this is a point of contention in, in our relationship. And I just really want to understand why for you. And then from that point to just do as much listening as you possibly can. And then you know, based on what she says to you as the reason why, you know, number two, maybe you'll understand where she's coming from. Maybe she is worried that you'll get wrapped up in something extreme that's bad for you, or maybe she is feeling shame for not doing as much as you. Maybe it is something that's understandable. And if that's the case, maybe you can say like, oh, okay, in that case, like I respect the boundary you've presented and not talking about this with you. I can totally do that because you understand where she's coming from. And Maybe, you know, if you can't understand where she's coming from, then the third option is just like, this might be a friendship that I've outgrown, which hurts Mm -hmm. and is sad. And you don't even need to have a big formal friend breakup. You just naturally, if you don't want to, you can obviously, but maybe it's just one of those things where you naturally just start going in different directions because your interests are taking you in different places. Uh, I think that would be my advice. Do you have anything? Yeah, I think just echoing you, like get curious as to why, because there might be some reason that, you you know that is that's you know maybe she's excited or they're excited for you and they're just not showing it or you know some sort of guilt shame thing but if and but I totally respect if they're like I don't believe in climate change oh my god if that's that could be a deal breaker that would be a deal breaker for me for sure that would be like a deal breaker but you could find that out yeah you could learn that yes and maybe you already know and we just don't know but I will say when we heard this message we were both like huh that's weird that's weird it's weird you are correct to feel like this is a weird thing that you're experiencing (laughs) and it's very weird thing for your friend to be upset about I don't know what's up with that um but yeah good luck man yeah good luck you deserve to pursue your passions and interests especially ones that are extra good for literally everyone on the planet yeah that is a good thing to care about Mm -hmm. so If you too would like to leave us a voicemail, you can find us on Patreon, patreon.com slash pickmeupimscared. It is $2 a month, but also you do not need to uh, subscribe. You do not need to give us your $2. That is your $2. You can keep that $2. We'll still be here whether you give us $2 or not. Thanks so much. Have a good one.